Exodus chapter 32. So, as we begin our study in Exodus 32, I want to remind you where we've been so far. Um, my message is called, Kill the Old Ways or They'll Kill You. And you'll see why. So, Exodus so far, chapter 1 through 18. I want to remind you because it's important. God physically removed the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. Physical salvation was the first step. Secondly, chapter 19 through 40, he's going to spend delivering them and preparing them to be delivered spiritually from Egypt. Because you know this, when you leave a place, you bring the things you learned in that place with you. And so with that being the case, spiritually, they learned a lot of things over 400 years in Egypt that needed to be removed from them. And whether you realize it or not, you become like what you soak yourself in. And so if you've been soaked in the world for most of your life, then you need to start soaking yourself in the Word of God. You need to be soaked with other believers. You need to be in the presence. You need to be marinating like a good bowl of chili. You've got to get out of the world, out of the store, and then into the crock pot, right? And so with that being the case, he's, from chapter 24 through 31, he's been receiving the law from God on Mount Sinai. Remember Moses went up in chapter 24, he took Joshua with him so far, and then Joshua hung back. Moses went up into the Shekinah glory, the, the cloud on top of Mount Sinai, and he's been there now, and it might seem like longer because we've done a chapter a week, but he's been there for 40 days. So while he's on this mountain for 40 days, God's unveiling this new way to worship that reveals the ministry of Jesus in the tabernacle. It also reveals what heaven's going to look like in the tabernacle. But then it also prescribes how he is to be worshipped. God's only to be worshipped in a specific way. And so in Exodus chapter 31, as he's closing out this discourse between him and God, Moses is receiving in chapter 31 that if God's work's going to be done, it's got to be done by his spirit. It's not done in our own understanding and wisdom. It has to be, we have to be empowered by God's Spirit to do God's will. So in chapter 32, Moses is going to leave this very holy place, the presence of God, and he's going to come back down to a sinful reality. Much like Jesus, when he went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, he took Peter, James, and John, and then his glory was revealed. And then after that, they had to come back down. And if you've ever had one of those holy moments with the Lord, I don't know about you, but I'd prefer to just stay there. I don't want to leave it. I don't want to come back down off the mountain. I want to stay on the mountaintop. And even Jesus, when he was in this life, he came down off the mountain, having been exalted, having been seen for all that he is, or at least a glimpse of it. The, the glory shines so brightly that it said that no launderer could get your clothes that white. And yet... He had to come back down off the mountain in preparation to be killed. But even on that day when he came off the mountain, he showed up and his disciples couldn't heal a boy with epilepsy. And so as he comes down from this being all that he is, he comes back down to his disciples who are not quite getting it yet. And they go, man, why can't we cast out these demons like you can? And Jesus says to them, some of these things only come out by prayer and by fasting. And so they're not getting it, and, and Jesus had to come down, and in the same way Moses had to come down off the mountain 
to find ye of little faith. And so in chapter 32, verse 1, we come back into our text, and it says, When the people saw, this is the mixed multitude of Israel, when they saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days. And in the sight of the people, from their perspective, it probably seemed like forever, right? But to Moses, I wonder if it just seemed like a moment. Because it says that he was up there, and it doesn't talk about him eating. He's just in the presence of God, just enjoying it. This, this timeless time with the Lord. And he comes back down. Excuse me, he doesn't come back down. And the people, not seeing their leader are like, what's happened to our leader? What, what are we supposed to do next? And so in this time of unknown, rather than just wait upon the Lord, they get, it, they, they get to work. They go, okay, well, we got to do something. We can't just be still. <laughs> we got, I mean, we got to get to work. And so they saw that Moses delayed, and they gathered together around Aaron. Now, did Moses delay? I mean, did he really delay? Or... Was he in God's perfect timing? Now, I believe he was in God's perfect timing, and the people weren't involved in that timing, and so they thought that it took forever. God's perfect timing to us can look like delay. And if you don't think so, read John chapter 11, where Mary and Martha send for Jesus because their brother Lazarus has died. And they say, Jesus, come, our, our, Lazarus is sick, and we need you to heal him. And Jesus, on purpose, delays for a couple of days, and then he comes. And when he gets there, Mary and Martha go, If you'd have come sooner, he wouldn't have died. Now, maybe that's the case. But God was going to do something that they didn't foresee, something they hadn't seen him do before. He wasn't just going to heal him. He was going to raise him from the dead. He was going to call him out of a cave. He was going to call him out of death into life. And so we see the people... Because they didn't see Moses, they tell Aaron, you need to make us gods. You, since we don't have our leader, make us something to lead us. Because we don't know. Have you ever done something because you didn't know what to do? I've done it. Many times we're tempted when we don't know what to do to go ahead and do something anyway. By the way, that's a terrible plan. They, they're instructing their leader, hey, why don't you lead us by doing what we tell you to do? And make us this, these gods out of something else. Make us gods that shall go before us, that shall lead us. For we do not know what's happened to Moses. Verse 2. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and notice this, it'll come back later. He fashioned it with an engraving tool. He made a molded calf. And then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that, you brought, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. They've just ascribed, ascribed their deliverance from slavery to a golden statue that they literally just made. What delivered you? This calf. 
Now, that might seem silly to us, but what are calves known for? Strength. They're, they're muscular. And no doubt they had also seen calves worshipped in Egypt. This is something, this is, they're going back to what they knew because they saw something they didn't know. And so in verse 5, it says, When Aaron saw it, not only did he build it, but then he built an altar to it, and he made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow's a feast to the Lord. And the word Lord there is actually the, the covenant name of God. It's in all capitals. So they're ascribing the name of God and what God has done, his works, to a statue. And as they're ascribing these things, I want you to notice that they, Aaron has no problem with it. He just starts doing what he's told. Like any good leader, he just did what he's told, right? Is that how we're supposed to lead if we're supposed to lead? No. So Aaron's response is, here's what I think we should do. And in the meantime, he did not seek God in the matter. And in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. God was to be the leader. And if God is to be the leader, then we have to follow his commands. So what's interesting here is in verse 3, they broke off the earrings like he told them. They brought them to Aaron, which is kind of interesting if you've been with us. They were giving a free will offering. They were doing some of the right things, but they were doing for them for the wrong reasons. He received the gold, he fashioned it, he engraved it, he made a molded calf, and they said, this is your God. So Aaron received, fashioned, he made, and then they proclaimed, this is your God. So verse 5, excuse me, verse 6, this is what their worship service looked like. I want you to think about it like that. Think about this. This is their worship service. They rose early on the next day. They offered burnt offerings. They brought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Now, you might read this and go, wow, that sounds like it could be a country song. I went to church, and then I did my thing, and, you know, thank God I'm a country boy, you know. And, and, and these things are not wrong. Uh, anything worth worshiping is worth getting up early for, don't you think? I rise up early to do all the things I love to do. Uh, they offered burnt offerings. If you remember the last few chapters, that's part of how Yahweh is to be worshipped. Making burnt offerings. That's how we are forgiven of our sin. We make a sin offering. We make a whole burnt offering. It goes up in smoke. It dies instead of us. Its blood's applied to the altar. They brought peace offerings. A peace offering is something that you eat with the person you offer it to. They're having a meal with God. They would sacrifice it. They would offer some up to the Lord, and they would eat some themselves. They sat down to eat and drink. We're going to take communion today. Isn't that kind of the same thing? We sit down, and we, we're having a meal with Jesus. But here's the problem. They rose up to, and I put it in air quotes, play. And the word play doesn't mean that they went to the lake and got on their jet skis and had some fun, good, clean fun. The word play actually has within it something else. But before we get there, I want to point out that this isn't the way to worship. 
This is the way, we're going to see in verse 6, that the world worships. This is the way the world worships. And I say that because it's not how they're worshiping, it's who they're worshiping. Who are they worshiping? A golden calf. The first Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me in my presence. And yet they've made one in the presence of God at the bottom of the mountain while the Lord is speaking to Moses up top. And so therein lies the problem. Who do you worship? And who do you worship? Who you worship will be revealed in how you live. Who you worship will be revealed in how you live. And I'm not talking about Sunday for an hour. I'm talking about the rest of your life. What's your life look like? So let's break down this word play. Essentially, they had a meal with God, and what the commentators and the historians tell you is that they were getting drunk. They were glutting themselves, and they were drinking too much. And then when they were done, and they were full, and they were satisfied in what they had eaten, then they rose up to play. And in chapter 32, verse 6, the word play there in the Hebrew is not just they went to go play video games. It's not that they were, it's not good, clean fun. The word has within it the idea of caressing, being entertained, uh, jesting, laughing, and making sport uh, or to mock. Literally, uh, the word is, forgive me, PG 13, sex play. There was something more than then just working hard and playing hard. They were working hard, they were serving God, and then as soon as the service was over, they got up, they lifted themselves up before the Lord, and they lived just like the rest of the world does. There was no difference between them and a complete pagan. And so, I want to take just a moment to unpack why I believe so strongly that this is what the word means, other than the word itself in the, in the Hebrew. If you go to Genesis in chapter 26, verse 8, Abraham's son Isaac, chip off the old block, when they would go to another town, and he was afraid that the, the, the king of that town would kill him for the sake of his beautiful wife, he would say, hey, why don't you tell him you're my sister instead of my wife, and then they won't kill me for your sake. And so she would oblige, and then the king, eventually, in Genesis 26, verse 8, it came to pass when Isaac had been in the Philistine country, where the king of Abimelech was, that Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Endearment means the, the, the word play there, caressing. He, and, and notice what he, he uh, observes based on seeing what Isaac was doing with Rebekah. Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, based on your actions, she is your wife. So how could you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. So whatever he was doing physically to her implied to this pagan king, that's the guy's wife. It's obvious. So what's interesting is that word means they were doing something on the day of the golden calf. They were playing, doing something that only husbands and wives should do with one another even according to the world. Now turn with me to Genesis 19, verse 14. Because in Genesis 19, verse 14, we see the word jesting or joking. 
And this wasn't, you know, a knock-knock joke. But in Genesis 19, verse 14, it's in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot has been shown by the angels of the Lord that God's going to judge the nation, this, this town. He's going to destroy it. And we know that because many of us have heard of, you hear Sodom and Gomorrah, you immediately think hellfire and brimstone, right? Well, as God's getting ready to do this, he warns those in the town that are godly. And it says, Lot, verse 14, Genesis 19, went out and spoke to his sons-in-law. He's going to warn them because, of course, he's going to want his daughters to come with them. He says to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. Sounds like a pretty stout warning. But his sons-in-law did not take him seriously because he seemed to be joking. Now, I think this is because, for whatever reason, Lot, though he was a follower of Yahweh, for whatever reason, the way that he would say the Lord in general conversation, eventually the world figured out that he didn't really have any meaning behind it. He would say things like, praise the Lord, or Lord willing, or let's see what God thinks, or maybe I'll pray about it. You know, some of the things we say as Christians, but he wouldn't actually do those things. And his sons-in-law, who knew him the best, when he would mention the name of God, they'd be like, whatever that means. So he had became a person that would use the Lord's name in vain to the point where, obviously, they didn't take him seriously anymore. I wonder if that would be us. Would, do I use the term, the Lord, in ways that cause other people to think that it really doesn't mean anything? I wonder. Because if that's the case, I'm committing the same sin that they were. I'm rising up and playing. I'm playing with God instead of living for Him and serving Him for Him. Instead of humbling myself before Him, I'm playing around with His name. And then chapter 39, verse 17. Genesis 39 and verse 17. Now in Genesis 39, we have the servant of the Most High God. We have Joseph, who is probably the biggest type of Jesus Christ in the book of Genesis. And he experienced lots of trials and tribulation, and he got wrongfully accused and thrown in prison and sold by his brothers and mocked and beat and all these things. But he continued to serve God out of the wholeness of his heart. And yet, when he found himself as a servant in the house of a man by the name of Potiphar, and Potiphar was away, Potiphar's wife kept making advances towards him. And as a young man, instead of saying, that sounds great, let's be together physically, he said, absolutely not, I will not sin against my God in this way. And yet what it says is when he wouldn't succumb to her advances, then she turned around and accused him, of trying to do something to her. And so in Genesis 39, verse 17, Potiphar's wife spoke to her husband with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to mock me. Now the word there means to make sport of me or uh, to rape me, to take advantage of me, uh, to win me physically. And so the idea is to make sport is more than just, hey, you know, I'm just making sport or playing a game. But the idea of making sport is to physically try to take advantage of someone. That was the term she used as she accused Joseph. 
And so when they rose up to play, that's what we're talking about. They were caressing. They were uh, entertaining themselves together. They were physically uh, adjoining themselves with one another. And they were making sport and mocking God in this display. And then they rose up to continue to live in sin, even though they just worshipped God. And so my question is, this is people that are supposed to know God. I wonder, when God looks down upon us, does he see us making sacrifices of praise, or maybe even giving to God, maybe serving God, and yet, after having communion and doing all these righteous acts, are we rising up to play just like the rest of the world and we really don't look any different? And so um, we have to be careful. Titus chapter 1, verse 15 through 16 says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and really unbelieving, nothing's pure. But even their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God. By the way, demons know God, and yet they don't humble themselves before Him. They profess to know God, but in their works, they deny Him. They are abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And so here's what the Lord sees as they are rising up to play after they worship. Back here in Exodus chapter 32, in verse 7, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go get down for your people, your people, Moses, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, they're corrupting themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They've made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. They're, they're having a worship service, and it's to this false god, this false idol. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. That God's calling it a, a spade a spade. He's not calling their worship acceptable. He's calling it abominable. He's calling it not okay. He's calling it sin. And sometimes we need to let the Lord search our hearts and actually call sin, sin, and then we need to confess it and agree with Him. And, and what's interesting is he, as He sees who they really are, how they really are in their hearts, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this, The Word of God is alive. You might insert Jesus. Jesus is alive, and He's active, and He's sharper than any double-edged sword. Jesus cuts all the way through, I, I would put this, I, Jesus cuts through the junk. He cuts through the malarkey. He cuts through the outward presentation. We're really good at presenting our best self when we need to. And yet God sees through it. He cuts to where the joints and the marrow come together. He judges the desires and the thoughts of man's hearts. You know, so many people say, well, only God can judge me. Yep, you're right. And he will. And he is. And it, if you would let him judge you and convict you of things, if I will let him judge me and convict me of things, then he'll keep me from doing a lot of stupid stuff. And so he judges between the desires and thoughts of the man's heart. 
There's nothing that can be hidden from God. Think about that in the context of this. Where's God and Moses? They're up on the mountain. Where's the sin-taking place? Down in camp. But God still knows about it, and he's telling Moses as if he's standing right there, because guess what? He is. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's nowhere you can go to hide from him. That could be terrible news if you're living in sin. (laughs) That could be wonderful news if you need him to be your ever-present help in time of need. And he always reveals sin so that we can be healed of it, so that we can be forgiven of it, so that we can repent of it. That's the good news of his omnipresence. And also, when you know he's with you everywhere you go, it helps you to make better decisions because you're living in the karam deo, in the constant presence of God. There's never a time where mom and dad aren't looking. There's never a time when the boss isn't looking. We're all accountable to the Lord. And so, he says, your people have corrupted themselves. He says, Moses, these are your people now. They're behaving like you do. Verse 8, they've turned aside from the way. They've made an idol. They've worshipped it. They proclaimed it their personal deliverer. If God asks you who delivered you from your sin, please don't point to your program. Please don't point to how you have 10 steps to be happy again. That's not the gospel. Just point to Jesus because he's the only one that can truly deliver you for the long run. I see the stiff-necked people, verse 9. Stiff-necked is like a donkey or a horse that's unwilling to be trained. Or even if it is trained, you put the bridle and the bit and you start pulling on it and they don't move. They don't budge. That's what he's calling the Israelites. They are a stiff-necked people. They're not meek. They're not willing to be led. But then verse 10, notice this. God makes, God makes Moses an offer that he will be tempted to not refuse. Now therefore, he says to him, Let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against the Israelites, and I may consume them. I will make of you a great nation, Moses. How tempting would that be? Sounds great. So you're going to take all these people that have been driving me nuts, you're going to smoke them, and we get to start over. Except then they have to start over, right? And no doubt, God could fulfill his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through that. But... Verse 11, that's not what Moses does. Moses begins to plead on behalf of his brothers and sisters. Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? He says, I didn't deliver them. That calf didn't deliver them. You did, God. You've invested in these people. Don't stop now. You brought them out with great power and with a mighty hand. He says, verse 12, Why should the Egyptians have words to speak against you? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, Well, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from his harm to your people. So, he's telling them, or he's telling God, he's praying He's praying that, they would, uh, that, that God would turn away from his wrath and instead relent. And then he prays in verse 13, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He's going to say, you made a promise to them. Lord, you're the promise keeper. We just sang that, right? 
the promise keeper. You make a way when there seems to be no possible way. He says, remember your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So, James chapter 5 verse 16 says, the effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And if you think your prayer doesn't matter, I want you to notice what happened here. Verse 10, God's ready to smoke them. And he tells Moses, in my wrath, I'm going to judge them. And Moses prays for three verses. This wasn't a long prayer, but it was a strong one. And by verse 15, or verse 14, it says, the Lord relented. The Lord relents from the harm that he desires to do to his people, which he said he would do to them. Now, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, says the Lord is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? And, and so what's interesting is many people go, see there, the, the Bible disagrees with itself. It, it contradicts itself. God said he was going to harm them, and then it says that in the King James, it actually says that he repented from the wrath that he would put upon them. But this is Moses writing down this story using a word that we do understand, right? Repent or relent means to turn away from something you were going to do and do something else. But it's not the sense of he's repenting of sin. God doesn't sin, nor does he need to repent from sin. Everything he does is righteous. It's an anthropomorphism. It's using a word that we ascribe to humans to describe something that God does, even though he's not human at all. And so that's why it seems to contradict itself. But in verse 15, God having uh, relented from what he was going to do, verse 15 says, Moses turned, now he's going down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. This is the Ten Commandments we see Charlton Heston carry down off the mountain. And the tablets were written on both sides, on one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So this wasn't something that Moses went up and received. This isn't some sort of gold plates from some sort of false prophet, but God himself wrote on these pieces of stone. They came down with words from God, and they came down with God's word written on stone, something that can't be changed. In Joshua, verse 17, remember Joshua went up with him. It was many chapters ago, but Joshua went up, and then Moses went up a little further. But in verse 17, it says, When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted down in the camp, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. So he heard what sounded like battle cries. But Moses says, it's not the noise of the shout of victory, nor is it the noise of the cry of defeat. But the sound of singing is what I hear. So Moses already knows what's taken place down there, right? God told him. But then he, through his ears, this is why our ears and our eyes can't be trusted, he observes by his own ability that there's actually good singing going on. 
But what we know and what Moses knew, not based on what he heard, not based on what he saw, he knows based on what God said, we need to trust what God says versus what we perceive. He notices that it's, it's actually not singing, but it's going to be something way worse. So verse 19, excuse me, true worship. All right, James chapter 4 and verse 7. True worship. James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter or your play be turned to mourning. Let your joy be turned to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So in the context of today's passage, I want to point out something. They sat down to worship, and they rose up themselves to play. True worship is where God lifts you. You don't have to lift yourself. True worship is where you humble yourself in God's sight, and then as you're humbling yourself, he lifts you up by his strength. False worship looks like this. You have to lift yourself up. And if you watch enough internet preachers or name it and claim it type people that are on TV, what they'll tell you is you just got to confess the positive things enough times and then you'll lift yourself up. The problem with that is that's not the gospel. Because even the first step in obedience to Jesus is repenting of sin, humbling yourself, and laying down your life and picking it back up again in Christ. That's baptism, right? Baptism is a symbol. You, you give your will and your ability over to someone else to let them put you under water, and then who lifts you up? Well, if the guy's strong enough, he lifts you up. The pastor does. But the symbol is that it's God raising you up into something new by his power and strength, not your own. A new way, you'll have a new purpose, you'll have a new master, you'll have a new life source. And so that's what we're seeing is that they don't have a new life source. They're following the, the dictates of their own heart. Think about it. So back in Exodus 32, verse 19, it continues on. It says, It was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. Now Moses wasn't surprised because God already told him that's what was going to be there. But still, Moses' anger becomes hot. And he starts to do things by his anger strength. Anger's not a sin, by the way. It's what we use our anger to do. So as he's angry, he does stuff. By the way, don't do that. Trust me, it's a bad idea. Don't let your anger empower you to do things uh, in a way quickly. Moses is going to have a problem with anger his whole life. And eventually, at this point, God gives him grace. But there's a point where he gets angry and he misrepresents God and he's not allowed to go into the promised land because of it. God takes it very serious. We represent God in how we handle ourselves. Nonetheless, when he's mad at them because they've broken the commandments, he gets mad and does what? Breaks the commandments. He throw, It says he cast the tablets of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. You ever been so mad at somebody that you... You lash out and you do the same thing you're mad that they were doing. All the time, my kids are getting loud. 
in the house. And how do I get them to be quiet? I get loud and I yell. They're yelling, so I go, stop yelling! And then my wife goes, do you see the irony in what just happened here? And, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So he took the calf which they had made, he burned it in fire, he ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water, and he made the children of Israel drink it. He made them drink it. Now, for your own study, go to Numbers chapter 5, verse 11 through 22, and you'll get a little insight. He's implying they've been adulterers against God. They've committed adultery against their God. Verse 21, he goes on to say, Moses said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them, Aaron? He's confronting the leader that he left in charge. So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people. They're set on evil. It's not my fault. It's theirs. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So far, they're remembering correctly, right? That's what happened. Verse 24, And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. Also true, that's what happened. So they gave it to me. I cast it into the fire, and out popped a calf. (laughs) Is that what happened? Or is that how he's telling it? You guys have been through these things before. You've had to interrogate somebody and go, Hey, what just happened here? And they start telling you a story, and you're like, that's not true. And you can tell right away, because it's the worst storytelling ever. I, I, I asked him to give me the gold, I put it in the fire, and out popped a calf. Meantime, if you look back at verse 4, it says, He received the gold, he fashioned it with an engraving tool. He did it on purpose. It was, it, it was no accident. And so... He made a molded calf, and they said, this is your God. That's what really happened. And Aaron, hearing them say, this is your God, said nothing. He didn't rebuke them. He didn't correct them. He just went along with the crowd. Aaron's not a good leader. He doesn't have any character. He he just follows the people. And so we have here him misremembering and oftentimes we do that verse 25 now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained for Aaron had not restrained them and that's the main point Aaron didn't lead well he did not restrain the people uh, to their shame among their enemies their enemies are watching them and Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said whoever's on the Lord's side come to me and all the sons of Levi gathered together uh, against them Now, in Proverbs chapter 29, in verse 18, the writer of Proverbs writes this, Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Since Moses didn't come down when they thought he should, they they were no longer restrained. They, They did what was right in their own eyes. But he says here, in contrast, happy is he who keeps the law. They didn't have to have revelation. God had already told them in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. They all heard them audibly from the mountain. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make gods and images of creatures. 
And so they did, even though they hadn't heard of a fresh revelation, if you've ever been in a spot where you, you, you know what God's called you, but you don't know what to do next, and you're waiting for further revelation, don't just jump up and start doing something. Wait upon the Lord and do what He's already told you in His written word. And if it causes you to do anything against those things, don't do them. It, will help, it would have helped the Israelites avoid what we're getting ready to read. Verse 26, Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. And the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And then he said to them, Here begins judgment. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man that came to me put his sword on his side, go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. The word of God is meant to cut away the flesh. And there were those among them that were bent on serving other gods. There was a mixed multitude. And so God, by this action, had to thin the herd. He had to make an example. They would never be able to look back on this instance and go, you know, I think God was okay with that when we worshiped the calf. They would know without a doubt, God calls this sin and he judges sin. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. The day the law came down from the mountain, that very day, 3,000 people were killed. The law was never meant to save us. It, it, it only kills us. The law brings forth death. It shows who we really are. But I also want to point forward to the New Testament because on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was sent down the very day, 3,000 people were added to the kingdom. They were saved eternally. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day for every man has opposed his son and his brother. They were zealous for the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. That's what they experienced that day. They received what they deserved because of what they did. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Receiving the word of God, responding to the word of God, means life. And so, verse 31, verse 30, it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, people, you've committed a great sin so now I will go up to the Lord. I'll represent you before him. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, and he starts to pray for them again. This is the sign of a good leader. Oh, these people have committed a great sin, and they've made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, Lord, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. I, I, I desire that they would be saved and I would be blotted out of the book of life. And the Lord, hearing this offer, says to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, that person I will blot out of my book. Each person will be responsible for their own sin. You can't make atonement for their sin, Moses. Now there will be a greater than Moses that will be blotted out for a time. He will be smited for their sin, Jesus. But then he says to Moses, Now therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I will, 
I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. And so the Lord plagued the people, and I want you to notice the reason. The Lord is not full of wrath, just vengeance on all, all the people all the time. The, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. I want you to notice why they are plagued. Verse 35, the Lord plagued the people because of what they did. Their works, will, your works will either condemn you or they will save you. Now, you might be saying, well, that can't be the case. I can't be saved by my works. Correct also. That's why we need the finished works of Jesus Christ. He says, it's because of what they did with the calf, which Aaron made, that I have had to plague them for their sin. So our works are important. Actions imply a belief. The way that you live implies who you worship. So he says to Moses, continue to lead my people as I lead you. But then, as we close, each one will be rewarded according to their deeds. Each one of us, it's the same today, will be rewarded according to our deeds. Revelation, excuse me, Romans chapter 2 verse 5 says, In accordance with your hardness of your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking, or self-willed, you might say, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there is indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. But glory, verse 10, honor and peace to everyone who works what is good. Now turn to Revelation chapter 22. And in verse 12, Jesus speaking in the revelation of Jesus to the Apostle John, in the very last chapter, in verse 12, he says, Behold, Jesus says this, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. There's that same phrase again. He says, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, I'm the beginning, I'm the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right of the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the holy city of God. So each one is awarded according to their deeds, and Jesus brings our award with him. So my question is, what will you be expecting? What do you expect God to reward you with? I want to turn one more place, John chapter 6, as we lead into communion and as we ponder these things. Jesus was speaking to a mixed multitude, much like Moses was getting ready to speak to a mixed multitude. Your sin is great, is what he said. But in John chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus said to the mixed multitude that were following him, he said, most assuredly I say to you that you seek me not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate of the bread that I gave you. You were filled, you were satisfied on the bread. He says, don't labor for the food which perishes, but instead labor for food which endures to everlasting life, 
which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. So then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Maybe that's your question this morning. Okay, I see that I'm going to be rewarded according to my labors, my works. But what shall I do to work the works of God? If I want to do the ones that please him, what do I do? Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? They're still seeking a sign. What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. That's why we trusted him. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. Moses did not deliver you from Egypt. The calf did not deliver you from Egypt. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. My father gives you the revelation you need to walk by faith. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I have given you this bread always. I am the bread. I am the supply. He says, he, whoever, whoever comes to me shall never hunger. They won't be hungry for the things of the world. Whoever believes in me shall never be thirsty again. You'll be satisfied in him. And so, as we get ready to take communion this morning, the question becomes, are you satisfied in him? And if you are, you'll never come to a leader and say, make me, make me something else to lead me. You'll never come looking for another ruler. You'll be led by him. And you'll be satisfied in his care over you. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are good, that in you pertains all things that pertain to life and godliness. You are all that we need. Forgive us, forgive me, when I make sacrifices or offerings to you, when I plead the blood of Jesus and yet I live as if I've been saved by something else. Father, we have gone away from you in ways, I'm sure. And we need you to bring our focus back to you. And so, Father, this morning, if we have done as the Israelites, and we've gotten off the path, and we've decided to build images and worship things rather than you and attribute goodness to them, and, and because of that, we're disillusioned and hopeless, then, Father, help us to see that we've placed our hope in a place where it cannot be found and get our eyes and our minds and our ears fixed back on who you are and what you've already accomplished and help us to see that you're the only one that can lead us home. That work that's begun in the Spirit, let us not try to perfect it in a fleshly or a worldly way, but instead let you cut away the flesh and lead us in a new way to lead us in Jesus. So, Father, we thank you for this time to worship. We pray that as the ushers pass out uh, the elements that you'd bless and that we would be able to take this not as people who profess to know God but in works deny him, but instead by those who profess to know God and in works want to believe him and follow him wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name.